pray. Father, may your word dwell in us this morning, today, and this week, and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Uh, for the first time the other day, I visited the Tambourine Mountain uh, Cemetery just here on Main Western Road. And I don't know about you, but I uh, find it quite interesting um, walking around and reading uh, what people have engraved on their tombstones or on their cremation plaques, because quite often the deceased person or their family will um, write an epitaph. And you may have had to think about this for a loved one. Or perhaps uh, you've thought about uh, this for yourself. They are, in a way, your last words to the world. And they're literally written in stone. Uh, and generally, they're a sort of simple Bible verse or perhaps a poem or perhaps some sort of proverb. Uh, and some are quite profound. And so, uh, for example, we read on Martin Luther King Jr.'s tombstone the words, Free at last! Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Uh, some are a little more humorous. Uh, Winston Churchill, for example, had engraved on his tombstone these words. I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> Some are a little more depressing, like this one. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. See, normally epitaphs sort of reflect back on that person and their life, but they also sort of look forward and anticipate what is next. Uh, well, today, in today's parable, in Jesus' parable, we meet a man who might have had as his epitaph, should have, could have, would have. That is, he had regrets, and uh, it was too late to rectify them. Uh, now, as John read that parable, you, you may or may not be familiar with this parable uh, because, uh, well, Luke 16, 19 through 31 is arguably Jesus' most bizarre parable uh, and it begs, um, it begs several hundred questions. Uh, is this parable literally describing heaven and, and hell? What is significant in this parable? What is, what is not? Well, I'm hoping we can answer these questions, but also some of yours as we um, walk uh, through this parable together. Uh, and as always, as we've done this entire series, we have to understand the parable in which this context was told, because Jesus has actually just told another parable. That is, this is his second parable of Luke uh, 16. And he tells the first parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, verses 1 through 13, uh, to his disciples, and it focuses on the good and right use of wealth. And actually, Jesus ends the parable uh, in verse 13 of chapter 16 with these famous words. You'll, you'll, uh, you'll recognise these words. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's familiar enough, isn't it? Uh, and the Pharisees, they overheard this, 
And so we read in verse 14 of chapter 16, and the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Uh, And so Jesus goes on to rebuke them, one for loving money, two for exalting themselves, and three for ignoring the authority of Scripture, ignoring the authority of the Old Testament. And so those three themes are woven together in this parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, to show them where the road they're on will lead them. And there are three movements to the parable, okay? There's uh, their, their earthly life, their death, and then their afterlife, their eternal life. And so in each movement, the rich man and the Lazarus are contrasted. And so contrast number one, their earthly life, their life on earth. Everything about this rich man conveys wealth, doesn't it? He lived in luxury every day. Here is the man that the Pharisees wanted to be, but he spends his wealth on himself and he spared none for the beggar at his gate. Uh, Lazarus. And Lazarus was literally uh, laid, or literally quite dumped, at his gate strategically Um, because that would be the place for a beggar to be laid, to be dumped, uh, and expect to receive some charity but he receives none. He doesn't even dream of being invited into the feast. He simply longs for the leftovers. Perhaps what you might give your dog after a meal. But instead of we're told, actually, the dogs come to lick his sores and don't picture a pack of cuddly puppies, okay? If the rich man was experiencing what we may refer to as heaven on earth, then Lazarus is experiencing uh, hell on earth. And no doubt, the rich man would have passed him regularly. He was, he was at his gate. And uh, he would have looked the other way. I'm not sure how many of you have watched the movie um, Amazing Grace. I think it came out in 2008. But Amazing Grace tells a story of William Wilberforce and his uh, fight to abolish the slave trade. You know the story if you haven't watched the movie. But there is a moment in the movie where a leisure cruise of, of MPs and wealthy supporters draws near to a slave ship, this, this slave ship here. And uh, Wilberforce appears and makes this speech. This is what he says. He says, ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship, the Madagascar. It's just returned from the Indies where it delivered 200 men, women and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That, that smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from, from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. And remember that God made men equal. See, uh, Wilberforce and his friends had sort of planned it so that these MPs and the wealthy supporters could no longer look the other way. They were forced to smell what was going on right underneath their noses. Well, this 
rich man would have seen or would have known about this sickening scene outside his gate and he, he, he looked the other way. He would have held his breath so as not to smell what was going on right under his nose. Clearly, God had not made them equal. But, um, um, spoiler alert, um, this is the only parable in which one of the characters is given a name. How about that? And uh, the beggar is named Lazarus. We might expect that the, the rich man be given a name, but, but actually he remains anonymous. The, the beggar is named Lazarus, and Lazarus, Lazarus means he whom God helps. And so if you're a switched-on first-century Jew, you may see where all this is headed because outwardly it appears that the rich man is blessed and Lazarus is abandoned, but all might not be as it seems. Which leads us to contrast number two, their death. We read in verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The rich man died and was Buried, and we can assume that he had a, a, a lavish funeral and he might even had this sort of elaborate tomb. He was honoured in life and death. But notice that there is no mention of a burial for Lazarus. Lazarus is probably tossed in a rubbish heap outside the city gates. But uh, the angels... Angels themselves carry him to Abraham's side, showing that he is welcomed into heaven. And so unlike the guests who sort of scrambled for the seats of honour, do you remember that parable back in Luke 14 of the invited guests? Unlike the guests who sort of scrambled for the seat of honour, Lazarus, who had never been invited to an earthly banquet, is escorted to the seat of honour at the heavenly banquet by angels. Lazarus, he whom God helps. And then the scene moves on to describe contrast number three, that the afterlife. For the rich man finds himself in Hades in torment. torment. Now, Hades is understood to sort of be the realm of the dead, and here it refers to the eternal place of punishment. So we know it better as hell. And Jesus uses this language uh, not so as to provide a sort of geographical survey of, of heaven and hell, but to illustrate the great reversal that has occurred here. He who had experienced heaven on earth is now in hell, while Lazarus who had experienced hell on earth is now in heaven. And although the rich man addresses Abraham as father, and Abraham in turn addresses the rich man as son, he is now entirely and eternally estranged. Uh, and he pleads, send Lazarus to, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this life. And, and, and in those words, actually, he's, he's revealed his hand. Because it turns out he did know Lazarus and he knew him by name. And he remains proud and unrepentant. He continues to see and treat Lazarus as beneath him. He has the gall to ask Abraham to send Lazarus to quench his thirst, the very thing that he wouldn't do for Lazarus. 
He who showed no mercy is now asking for mercy. He wasn't sorry for the way that he'd mistreated Lazarus. He was, he was sorry for himself. He doesn't repent. He regrets his own fortunes. And so begins this sort of short dialogue between Abraham and the rich man. And there are a couple of things I want us to notice here. At first, not only is he now receiving his due and Lazarus is his, but Abraham explains there in verse 26, and besides all this, he says, between us and you, a great chasm has been set into place, set, set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, Jesus is not painting a landscape here, right? The painting is an abstract painting, but his point is that beyond this life, between heaven and hell, there is this great divide that cannot be crossed. The verdict in the next life is permanent. And this man had had been repaid according to what he had done or, or not done. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Second, uh, since he can't escape this place of torment, he wants Abraham to once again, notice, send Lazarus to his family so that they might escape this place of torment. And Abraham responds there in verse 29, look, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. See, the Jews already had God's word. Much like we do. But the implication here is that this is not enough. And yet the Old Testament clearly condemned this man and would have clearly served as a warning for his brothers. You need only read, uh, for example, Isaiah, who, is, who may be said to be sort of the prophet after Moses, to understand that God would have his people care for the poor and that his people's failure to meet their needs would provoke God's wrath and God's judgment. And at the very least, as Jews, they would have known the Ten Commandments, And they knew that the last six had to do with how you were to relate to others. And they may not have summed it up like Jesus did, love your neighbour as yourself, but they understood the rightness of compassion. You see, at first glance, it may appear that the rich man was sent to hell because he was not generous enough with his money. That's not the case. Actually, the true reason for his damnation was his disregard of Scripture. And particularly his disregard for the poor. See, God commands Israel throughout the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy 15, that they were not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward the poor, but generous. And friends, this still reflects the way that God would have his people live. And Abraham says, let them listen to them. But the rich man, he, he rebuttals. No, Father Abraham, but if, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. Um, now, I'm sure you've all uh, read or perhaps uh, seen some sort of adaptation of Charles Dickens' um, A Christmas Carol. Some of them are more recent. Um, and I think this is one of the original illustrations, actually. You sort of know the general storyline. And uh, Jacob Marley 
Ebenezer Scrooge's deceased business partner, appears here as a ghost. And he is now chained and tormented and sort of doomed to wander the earth forever as punishment for his greed and his uh, selfishness when he was alive. And he now sees the hardships that others suffer and he laments that he's forever lost his chance to help them. And so Marley arranges for the three spirits to visit Scrooge, giving his friend an opportunity for redemption. Now, there are some, there are some clear differences, okay? This illustration is not perfect. But the rich man wants Lazarus to be his Marley, to his brothers, to warn them, to give them an opportunity for redemption. If someone, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent Now, it's meant to be a little ironic, actually, for those of us who knows where the gospel is headed. Yes, in the context, the one to rise would have been Lazarus, but Luke's readers could scarcely not think about Jesus himself who rose from the dead, and yet even when he does, the religious leaders will continue to reject him. And besides, in in John's gospel when Jesus raises someone from the dead, coincidentally named Lazarus, it doesn't sort of spark a revival. It doesn't spark repentance. It actually triggered a plot to kill Jesus. No, Abraham replies in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The scriptures were sufficient They didn't need any more instruction. They didn't need any more warning. They needed to hear Scripture and they needed to heed Scripture. They needed to eternalise God's law. And so Jesus' message to the Pharisees who loved money was that they needed a new heart toward God, a new generosity toward people and a new attitude toward money. Now, as as I said before... um, Jesus has the most to say about money and he has the most to say about money in the Gospel of Luke. And it may sometimes appear pretty harsh, sort of as if he's picking on the rich. But we make a mistake if we assume that Luke is an evangelist against the rich. He's more accurately an evangelist to the rich. See, some might argue that this parable teaches that the the poor go to heaven and and the rich go to hell. And of course, the problem with that is that poor Lazarus is carried to the side of wealthy Abraham. And we also know from the Gospel of Luke, the first couple of verses of the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is writing to the most excellent Theophilus, a recent convert, most likely a well-off, Roman official. And Luke himself was a doctor. He seems to be relatively well off. He appears to be well educated, well traveled, and well connected. No, no, no. Um, being rich or poor alone does not determine our fates. Actually, this story doesn't teach how the poor are saved, it concentrates on the question of why the rich man is lost. It's a warning to the rich, not a promise to the poor. You see, the rich face unique dangers. 
Now, I know that wealth is relative. Everything's relative. Wealth is relative, but I would suggest that we are relatively wealthy. And misusing or abusing our wealth brings divine judgment. There are big dangers in being rich, but also big opportunities. Now, you don't need to feel ashamed for being rich. You don't need to trade places with the poor, but you must know that wealth does not guarantee your place in the kingdom of God. See, many in Jesus' day, actually many today, believe that riches are sort of a stamp of approval from God for a righteous life. Not so. Jesus had said just a few minutes earlier in Luke 16, 13, this verse, this famous verse, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the rich man went where his master money took him. And Jesus warns us, being rich closes your ears to the word of God and closes your eyes to the need of your neighbour. We need a new heart toward God, a new generosity toward people, and a new attitude toward money. There's a key New Testament verse that helps flesh some of this out. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And Paul writes here to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. They may take hold of the life that is truly life. So, let me suggest, let me finish by suggesting two ways that we may avoid having an epitaph that reads, should have, could have, would have. Two ways that we may not only hear God's word today, but also heed it. First, have God's will shape how you spend your wealth. Have God's will shape how you spend your wealth. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward the poor and the needy. Guys, this parable is not about world hunger, but about the hunger of one man whose name the rich man knows and who is right on his doorstep. It's not as easy as you think. You will need a new heart toward God, a new generosity toward people, and a new attitude toward money. And we can begin by remembering and eternalising what it is that Christ has first done for us. We read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for example, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. As Christians, we are actually freed and we are fueled to help others. 
So first, have God's will shape how you spend your wealth. Second, have God's time shape how you spend your wealth. We are to use money in this age with regard to the age to come. With your eternity in mind, but also the eternity of others in mind, which means supporting gospel ministry. The gospel is how you and others, your response to the gospel is what will determine our fates. And there's something there, isn't there, also in the timing of all this, in the time devoted to each of those movements in this parable, just, you know, a sentence or two is devoted to the earthly life, a single sentence speaks of their death, and several sentences, the rest of the parable, it doesn't end, speaks of their eternal life. And it reminds us of the transience of this life and the permanence of the next. See, how you handle your money has everything to do with your following Jesus. You cannot separate the spiritual from the secular. You cannot separate your faith from your everyday life. You can't do it. If you'll try, you'll end up like the Pharisees. And so my prayer for myself, for Miriam, for my kids, for you, is that we are lifelong and whole-of-life disciples. And that in using our wealth as God would have us, we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your spirit speaks to us in your word. And we thank you for this parable of Jesus and for the way that it challenges us to think about our hearts toward you, our generosity toward others and our attitude toward money. And we pray that we might well follow you in our everyday life, that we may be lifelong and whole-of-life disciples of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the witness that your word provides and the warning that it provides. And I just pray that we may not only hear God's word, but we may also uh, heed it. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing uh, to finish our service. Um, my hope rests firm. Please stand and sing.